This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Deakin University philosopher and lecturer, Dr Matthew Sharp. Matthew joined me to talk about how Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism can help us get through the lockdown and COVID-19 pandemic. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. And I'm delighted to have with me Matthew Sharp, who is an Associate Professor in Philosophy at Deakin University. And we're going to be talking all about how Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism can help us get through this pandemic. And of course, many people who are currently based in metropolitan Melbourne and Mitchell Shire will also be experiencing a pretty significant lockdown. And um, we're pretty much almost at the halfway mark of a six-week lockdown. So certainly um, that's another factor for us in our discussion today. And uh, Matthew covers a wide range of philosophical theories and ideas in his career, and certainly Stoicism is just one of those. But I welcome Matthew now. Thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Thanks, Amy. Good to be here. It's great to chat again. And I know last time we got into some pretty heavy content and it was, I think it was about February, which was when coronavirus wasn't really as big as it is now. Uh, Obviously it was a big thing in Wuhan at the time, but um, we weren't really aware of just how much it would have changed our lives. Oh, look, absolutely not. It was, it was, yeah, it was a completely different world, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> some people want to go back. I'm sure we all do in some ways. It was, it was still almost like a rumour or just something on the yeah. nightly news. Yeah. Um, who knew? Mm. And, um, and I know that we did touch briefly on Stoicism last time and we were talking about it in the context of Albert Camus, who wrote a fantastic book called The Plague, which is, of course, very relevant. And it was interesting when I was reading your piece in the conversation, Guide to the Classics, how Marcus Aurelius's meditations can help us in a time of pandemic. You also bring up the fact that Marcus Aurelius was the Roman emperor. And during that time that he was emperor, of course, there were wars and battles, but there was also the Antonin Plague, which killed 5 million people, which is a staggering number of people, really. And uh, so it's interesting to know and to think that, of course, we're not necessarily living in unprecedented times, um, although we are perhaps in modern times, but uh, plagues and pandemics are certainly not a new thing. Well, that's right, isn't it? I mean, I think that figure five million is—it was something like twenty percent of the of the population, according to some estimates. So obviously, that was, you know, that was an incredibly significant event, and it went on for sixteen years. You know, I guess they didn't have that. Well, they didn't have the medicine that we have, and I don't know whether lockdown was really a, a possibility in a city like Rome. Um, you know, which had, I think, more or less several million people already at that time. So. Mm. I mean, you can only imagine the, the the scenes that would have unfolded in that context. And just for it to go on for 16 years is, is just staggering. Marcus was away for a good deal of that time. He was on the, on the, the frontiers doing what Roman emperors did, putting down revolts and, and, and protecting the borders. But it, it also ran through the army at several times. So... You know, um, as you say, certainly not unprecedented. Thankfully, the numbers so far, you know, are, are not 
exactly comparable, although in the United States they seem to be giving it a, giving it a shake. But cer- certainly not here, and, 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 and we certainly hope that it's not going to last for 16 years. Mm, yes, yeah. And um, one of the interesting things about Stoicism is that it really, the, the kind of beginning of it, is a lot earlier than some of these later writers like Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. So I'm wondering if you could share with us where did the philosophical movement of Stoicism originate? Okay, so Stoicism was born at the end of the the 4th century before the Common Era. So it was born in the the generation after Alexander had taken over all of Greece and most of the known world um, by a guy called called Zeno and one of the many interesting things about this movement is although it was it was Greek we call it Greek philosophy Zeno was himself from what well, uh, from Larnaca in, in what we would call Cyprus and pretty much all of the significant early Stoics came from Turkey or what we would call the Near East um, they were all in different ways migrants into Athens and and that's something we kind of forget because you know you sort of look back on the classical world and it has a certain aura about it and we assume that um, everyone there was, you know, Athenian. Um, everyone came to Athens who wanted a life of the mind, but not everyone in Athens who wanted the life of the mind was, was Athenian. And so they brought with them, um, they were traders or many of them were students and, and they brought with them, I guess, this, this different set of ideas, which nevertheless also drew on, on Socrates. And Socrates was their, their great hero both for the life that he lived, the teachings that he taught, and also the way that he died. And so this all sort of unfolded. So Zeno, the founder, he was last decade of the fourth century into the the third century. And then there were two kind of major figures who followed him, major in terms of what they wrote, a guy called Cleanthes and then one guy called Chrysippus. Now, Chrysippus was the guy who kind of wrote most of all this down. He wrote over 300 books, but all of them are pretty much gone. And, you know, that's just the way that history works. The, the texts that we have, uh, as you say, mostly from, from the Roman period, and they're mostly from the Roman imperial period. So Seneca, uh, the younger, is the first sort of Stoic of, of great note because we have 16 of his philosophical dialogues and he also wrote letters and tragedies. Then there's Epictetus, uh, who was a little bit later, just into the second century, and he was a slave. So again, you know, it's, it's extremely interesting that this philosophy from its beginning attracts all comers from different places and also from all work, walks of life. So Epictetus was actually a cripple as well. So he was a crippled slave. Uh, he was emancipated and then he founded his own philosophical school. And such was, was the fame of this school that the emperor Hadrian visited and sort of dignitaries from from all around the place. And then finally, there's Marcus, Marcus Aurelius, um, yeah, who is emperor from 161 to 180. He's generally considered to be the last of the great Roman emperors. His son, Commodus, was a bit of a disaster. And it's with Commodus on most accounts that the whole thing begins to unfold in terms of what was called the Roman peace. So, yeah, it's, the school spans in, in antiquity seven or 800 years. And, and for much of that time, it was probably the most popular philosophy in antiquity. So a lot more significant than 
you know, it, it gets credit for in a lot of modern accounts of history where ancient philosophy is Plato and Aristotle and then mm. you skip to to St. Augustine and off you go sort of thing. <laughs> there is a bit more than that, isn't there? It did remind me that there are people called the cynics who were around as well. The cynics were, um, were another kind of influence, very strong influence on the Stoics. Epictetus, for example, really admired Diogenes, who's the most famous cynic. And Diogenes was sort of like a, an ancient sort of performance, performance artist or, or situationist. He would go around Athens and try and convince everybody that they were living the wrong way by staging these kinds of mini spectacles. Like he would, he would beg in front of statues with like his hands open as if he expected the statues to give him money and wait for people to ask him why he was doing that. And he'd say, well, I'm, I'm teaching myself patience, you know, uh, yeah. or he, he'd walk around Athens in daylight with a, a lit, a lit lamp saying that he was looking for an honest man. Um, and so on and hence we get the word cynicism right because one of your jobs as a a cynic philosopher was to kind of go around and lambast people and and try and shake them up which is unusual and not for everyone it's a different uh approach than someone like plato who was trying to reason with people i believe and 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 socrates yeah Yeah. Um, diogenes was known as the mad socrates i mean socrates is still a (laughs) accost people and question them and occasionally um, make them angry. But there's this kind of missionary dimension to cynicism, which isn't really there in Socrates. And, mm. and it's not there in the, the Stoics. It's, the, the Stoics treat the cynics as kind of hardcore philosophical daredevils that really take a lot of good principles and push them to their absolute extreme in a way that they find immoderate and yeah. a bit a bit unbalanced. <laughs> so they're not really going to win over the, the kind of moderate people. Well, the Stoics had a lot of success with the Roman aristocracy in particular. And, you know, I guess we can talk about why, why that is the case. But one reason is the philosophy does suggest that other things being equal, you know, human beings are brothers and sisters and, mm. and um, you should treat others with, with care and, 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 and with dignity and, um, and the cynic approach is more uh, is more brutal than that. That um, if people have wrong opinions, they need to be corrected, and you know, sort of uh, tiptoeing around the tulips is not going to get the job done. The Stoics are more likely to be Socratic, and they're more likely to try to sit you down and talk to you mm. and convince convince you that you might be in error in your ways rather than shouting at you and telling you that you are. Interesting. That's very interesting, especially nowadays when we're talking about um, post-truth and a lot of people believing in conspiracy theories and the ways that we approach them when we believe that they're wrong. Look, what do you do? It's so common. I mean, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, I yeah. remember when the, the 9-11 stuff started circulating around and I mean, that already seemed fairly troubling in all sorts of ways, but it's really since then just become so common and yeah what do you do when you confront people who sort of have extremely exotic beliefs it's difficult but i mean the the stoic and the socratic would say that you should try to talk to them and and and, you know one of the principles that they share is that nobody goes wrong willingly nobody Mm. does wrong or believes wrong things um except through ignorance and so you ought to be able to to use reasoning to try and correct their beliefs now of course 
that's a pretty hazardous enterprise when somebody believes some um, fairly unusual things. And Socrates, I mean, as he, he, in some sources, we're told that Socrates occasionally got got whacked by interlocutors by people who, who found him annoying. And even in Plato, there are points where Socrates is talking to someone who says, well, look, Socrates, I've had enough of you and I'm leaving. <laughs> um, so you, you, I mean, I guess the principle of these schools would be you can try. Yeah. Uh, and people, and, and, but if you try, you must realize that you can fail. Yeah. It's interesting, especially the kind of foundations of stoicism. And, you know, when I was reading through it, as you say, this kind of the fact that we're all somehow interconnected and related, not necessarily like family relatives, but in a, a bigger sense that we're meant to look at each other as fellow humans and not have such severe judgment upon others. One of the things that is kind of what I call the warm side of stoicism, there's a more cold side, which is probably more famous. I mean, we still use the term stoicism to mean kind of not having a very good time and and sort of just being down on everybody. And I I think that's really inaccurate. And there is a warm side of it. And it's, and, and it's a very cosmopolitan philosophy. It's, it's a philosophy that suggests that where you come from, the colour of your skin, what language you speak, what food you eat, all of that is completely not essential in terms of what makes a person a person and what, make, what makes people alike. And what makes people alike is their capacity to, to think, their capacity to suffer, but also the kinds of affections that we have because of the kinds of creatures that we are. So one of the later Roman Stoics, a lesser known guy called Hierocles, he has this idea of circles of concern. Like, first of all, people should look after themselves. Secondly, they should look after their families. That's the next circle. Then they should look after their local community. That's the next circle. Then they should look after their entire city or we would say country. And then the largest circle is every human being. And I mean, in principle, I, you know, that could be extended, I guess, to, to all living beings. Mm. Um, certainly Stoic philosophy believes that nature is, is a living organism and that we're all sort of parts of, of this living organism. So, you know, it has, it's a philosophy of interconnectedness, uh, although, as I say, there is this other side which point, you know, seemingly points you in a different way. But Marcus talks about us being like, you know, each of us is like the hand on a, on a, on a body and the body is like the, the human community. And when we act badly, it's like we chop, off, we, we chop off what ties us to the rest of the human community or he uses the metaphor of like a, a branch on a tree. You know, you, you kind of, when you act badly towards others, when you create hatred or anger unnecessarily, it's like a little branch has got chopped off the, the human tree. So, I mean, I find that, as I say, I call it the warm side of... Of, of stoicism mm. it's very cosmopolitan it's very about interconnectedness and you know it, it has no truck with what we would call nationalism what we would call jingoism with you know what we might call you know racial supremacies which again the internet seems to be bringing back into into the public space Yeah. And one of the kind of other elements of that in terms of what matters in the end is the fact that if one loses all of their personal possessions, I believe a Stoic would think that that is also not 
important in the sense that they haven't lost something that was intrinsic to them, their character. They've just lost an external possession or external good. So this is what gives rise to the the cold side of Stoicism. The Stoics argue that everything in the world that is beyond your control, so external goods like, I don't know, I use the example of Coke just as a miscellaneous consumer item, but TVs, everything like that, you know, anything you can buy and sell or trade, it doesn't belong to you by nature, they believe. What belongs to you by nature are the things that you have direct control over and that is what you do what you think what you desire what you hope what you feel and what you fear and that's pretty much that's what the gods have delivered over to you for like 80 years hopefully for you to control everything else is controlled by either somebody else or by the gods as they would say we might say by nature the course of nature or something like this and so the idea is that you know if you you do have to go into lockdown to use that kind of phrase which it is really involving a lot of kind of privation of of stuff we usually have and Mm. not least the ability to kind of go out and hang out with our friends and stuff like that that is that they would say that's obviously not preferable and it's not according to the ordinary course of nature like ordinarily human beings do have communities we don't wear masks we we can go to drinking establishments or eating establishments and and eat and drink and, and and share each other's company and so on and so forth so it's not, it's not good, right, that that's happened. Mm. But neither would they say is it, is it bad in the sense that it doesn't prevent people, in their view, from still living well because what concerns whether you live well is what you do with what happens to you, not just what happens to you. We're not like puppets that fortune can kind of pull the strings on. We have a say when fortune pulls the different strings. We can say, yeah, okay, I know that's happening, but what am I going to do about it? So, I mean, even the cold side of stoicism has an empowering message, which is that, you know, a lot of things can happen that you might think are really bad, but according to the Stoics, you know, they they don't take away what is essential to being able to live well, which is the ability to think good thoughts and do good things. And when we get to looking at the world and what is good and what is bad, what would they consider to be good? So there's one thing in the world that the Stoics believe is good and they call it virtue, which is not really a word that kind of has a lot of resonance I'm finding with students these days. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, it's just, it's not really used. Yeah. So virtue is like a, yeah, strength of character again, but again, that sounds a little bit sort of English public school. Excellence is what the Greek word means, but again, that just sort of now sounds a bit market sort of, Mm. market sort of. (laughs) mumbo jumbo um strength of character i don't know what what would you call virtue excellence strength of character um i use the example of courage a lot because i think yeah students can still really resonate with with that with that virtue but other virtues integrity integrity is a virtue that people i think really want honesty yeah these are the things that the stoics think are good and and so basically the argument goes like this right so Society might tell you that having a really nice car is, is going to make you happy or something like this. Um, and the Stoics say, okay, great, let's test the hypothesis. Let's get everybody who's got a really nice car and ask them whether they're really, really happy with the, uh, with the world because they have that car. And if we find even one person who has a really nice car or whatever it is, a really nice house, a beautiful wife, whatever it is, but still is unhappy, then 
then we can say that although having a beautiful partner or a nice car is perhaps preferable, it's not enough to make you happy. And all of those examples have, have ancient precedents. So clearly having these things isn't enough to make you happy. So what is it? We're not saying that having those things might not be preferable, but something else has got to be needed. And, and the thing that has to be needed is the ability to know what to do with them. The ability to, for example, treat your partner well. The ability to not overindulge in various substances. The ability to not get too caught up in the fact that your car might get stolen or might get doofed by somebody else or you might accidentally scrape it as you back out. Or it might break down or the power steering might lock or, you know, all the things that might happen with these things. The good news of stoicism is what is really decisive is what you do with that. And so they recommend a kind of reserve in the way that we treat external things, a kind of inner reserve, which another way they put this is it's a kind of indifference towards other things. I mean, it's not that you don't still get a job, get married, whatever it is you might do. It's just that you have a slightly different attitude towards them. You don't imagine that they're the be all and end all. So they're pretty strict on their terminological stuff. So for something to be good, it has to always benefit its possessor. And the only thing in the whole cosmos, they say, that will always benefit you is the virtues like cars, mm. TVs, partners, even kids. All of these things won't always benefit you or they won't always make your life easier or better. The one thing that always will is if you have courage, if you treat others with justice, if you think about what you're doing and you act with wisdom, and if you are moderate in your attitude towards these things, which means having a little bit of a kind of a res what they call a reserve clause. So you still want to do stuff. So you want to get things done in the world, but you have a reserve clause. Like I want to get that job, but I realize I might not get that job. And if I don't get that job, it's not going to be the end of the world because there might be other jobs. And that's the kind of, that's what they call a reserve clause. Acting with a reserve clause. It seems like it's very like a healthy way to approach something, to not get your hopes up and to pin all of your happiness or future hopes onto one certain thing, especially if it is or many factors are beyond your control. And one of the kind of other elements that I was interested in relating to that was when I, I read a quote from Marcus Aurelius that he put in, I think, his second book, which was, before you get going in the morning, say to yourself, Today, I'll meet people who are meddlers, ingrates, bullies, cheaters, envious, and antisocial people. All of this happens because they don't know the difference between what's good and what's bad. And then he also later goes on to talk about the fact that we should focus on our own flaws rather than those around us, because that's something that we can control. I'm interested in that way of looking at things to realize that nobody's perfect, that of course we're going to be challenged by other human beings in our daily life, but we need to, to not kind of get angry and, and focus our vengeance or annoyance on them. How does one put that type of principle into practice when we're thinking about things in the 21st century and we're operating in, in an environment where things like social media just amplify annoyances and I guess sometimes the, the worst side of people? It's a great question. I mean, Marcus was, was an emperor, as we've said, so he was clearly surrounded by people who were scheming and, and backstabbing him and Look, I mean, a couple of couple of guys had a shot at, at taking over the 
taking over the empire. And he comes back to this a lot. You know, he's clearly dealing with the fact that people are spreading rumours about him. They're, they're saying all sorts of things about him, that he's not a very good person, that he's not a very good leader and all that sort of stuff. So he, he's clearly kind of wrestling with this on a greater level, obviously a greater scale in terms mm. of his significance than most of us. And that's one of the, I think, really powerful features of the meditations is nevertheless, all of these things I think kind of happen to most of us most of the time in competitive fields and so on and so forth. I mean, the, the key thing for the Stoics about, about dealing with other people is, is, that, is, again, it's that distinction between what's in your control and what's not in your control. And look, at a certain basic level, they'll say you can't really control what other people are going to do. And people form all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas, as we know, in the age of the internet. And therefore, they can treat you on the basis of those ideas in ways that you can barely understand because they categorise you in ways and so on and so forth. So all you can control is what you do with that. So there's a great quote which I use in the, in the piece about, you know, so you have heard that somebody has been speaking badly of you. And, he's just, and Marcus says to himself, what you have heard is that somebody has said this or that about you. You have not heard that you are harmed by this. Um, and that's the internal external distinction, right? Mm. So yes, it's out there. This is, this is going on and reputations aren't in, in our control. Even the con- reputation of an emperor can't be fully controlled. Although, you know, we, we spend lots of money these days on, on brand management and all that sort of stuff. All you can do is, is, is how you respond. And, and Marcus believes and, and, all of the Stoics believe that generally speaking, anger and this kind of unconditional desire for vengeance is generally pretty destructive. So Seneca, a Stoic, says that anger is like a, an acid that corrodes any vessel that you put it into. So yes, you're, you get angry, it may motivate you to act and, and, and it might um, be successful at action, but it also corrodes your, your well-being. It's not it's not a nice inner state to be in, to be kind of racked with anger. So the ideal of the Stoic is that you should try to, to not be angry, you know. So when somebody insults you, they have this kind of very logical process, you know. If that person has said something that's true, then change yourself. If what they said is false, don't worry about it. If they've gone behind your back, well, that's their business. It's not your business. You haven't betrayed anyone's trust you haven't harmed anyone by doing that and so this very famous quote from book six is that the best revenge is not to be like the wrongdoer which which you know is is extremely powerful and 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 sort of anticipates that christian idea of of turning the other cheek because you have been wronged you don't have to meet wrong with wrong which Mm. generally speak is just going to lead to an escalation and none of this is easy, and this is why I think Marcus is coming back to this because the books were kind of probably written, we think, over more or less 14 or 15 years, and this stuff keeps on happening. So he's, he's returning to this in his meditations because he's needing to, to deal with it again and again. Yes, and there's an interesting element to this, which is that these meditations were written for 
Marcus Aurelius and it was something that he was using um, in a very practical sense I believe in his own life it wasn't necessarily to expound a, a philosophical theory for others to pick up and utilize necessarily and it, it obviously it wasn't um, published during his lifetime either. Yeah that's right I mean there's no evidence from from anything that's said about Marcus and obviously that's quite a lot because he's a He's an emperor. He was known as a philosopher, but to be known as a philosopher in antiquity didn't mean you wrote books. It meant that you lived a certain life. And there's pretty much no evidence in antiquity that he was writing a book. And it was kind of, it was discovered, this collection of 12 um, 12 books uh, were discovered amongst his mortal remains. I really like this story. It's sort of, I believe it was, they were found near the banks of the, the River Grand. It reminds me of J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, it's sort of like a, a philosophical ring of power, uh, except that this one was actually arguably for, for the cause of good rather than evil. So, yeah, it was found on the banks of the River Grand amongst stuff from, from Marcus's, I guess, his tent or something like this. And, you know, it wasn't in circulation for many, many years. It, it sort of crops up here and there until the Renaissance when so much was rediscovered. And then it gets translated into Latin and goes viral, as we would say, <laughs> and influenced people from, you know, from philosophers to, to leaders from that time forwards, you know, Bill Clinton, for example. And um, yeah. Nick, Gr- Nick Griner, the former NSW um, Premier, I believe, is a big fan or was a big fan of, of Marcus Aurelius. Interesting. I don't know whether that's going to please your listeners who might not <laughs> be any crying about it. Anyway. <laughs> and obviously Bill, Bill had some work to do, right? He, he had some personal, personal work to do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That is so true. I'm interested bringing it back to the pandemic and also maybe the lockdown, given it's so real for everyone at the moment, and this feeling of isolation, which no doubt was around even when the lockdown wasn't in effect, because we're all having to socially distance, physically distance, not do the things we would normally do if we were celebrating a birthday or having a Friday night out. Things have really changed and that kind of person-to-person connection and relationships that we would normally have in a very easy way are no longer that easy. And I know that a lot of people have said that they're feeling very uh, I guess, alienated or, or alone at the moment, depending on whether they're living by themselves, if they have a partner or no partner, if their family's close by or not. And I'm wondering in terms of human relations and intimacy and love, like how did Marcus Aurelius and perhaps the, the other Stoics view human connection and intimacy and its place as a kind of an important fulfilment of being human? So this is where the, the, the idea that there's a coldness to Stoicism kind of comes up because people say, well, look, if everything outside you is indifferent to you or at least it's at most to be preferred or not preferred, what does that mean about how you relate to other people? There seems to be something pretty basically wrong with that idea, you know, that your partner is just, you know, somebody who you, you hope or prefer will be living well and having good health and so on or your kids. So it is important that, as I said, this warm side of Stoicism kicks in. And this is the view, like, and it's very clear in some texts that they really do believe we are fundamentally interconnected. And they, in, in an important way, they, they point in particular to parental love as, as kind of like 
the most basic sort of unit of human connection that, you know, that is kind of the basis of everything else in the sense that parents just spontaneously, naturally, more or less selflessly love their kids. And in some formulations, for example, in one of Cicero's books, the whole system is built up on that, on a kind of spreading that, the, the circles of affection that we talked about before mm. um, on the basis of this idea that we're born for each other. We're born from each other. We're born for each other. And, and look, that's clearly, that's a, such a difficult part of, of what's going on. I mean, I've got a family um, and, um, you know, there are other jokes about lockdown with your family <laughs> uh, and longing for isolation. But yes. I mean, I have students who are, single people in their 20s living by themselves who had a taste of freedom just a little while ago and now they're back in lockdown and some of them understandably are are doing hard and I guess what's happened there is that expectations have changed you know I think Mm. there was I don't know how others felt about it but I I know some people I've spoken to there was kind of a little bit of a a novelty factor about lockdown 1.0 you know it was a bit of a holiday we're going to be working from home you know, we get to kind of work in our bedrooms or our studies or whatever mm. it is. But I think this time it's just, it's just bleak. It's just how long is this going to last? Is six weeks realistic, particularly that the numbers are, are, are really bad in Metro Melbourne at the moment. And so when you have those alternative expectations, it's a lot harder to deal with because you're measuring your experience against those changed expectations which were that we were going to come out of this, which were th- things were going to get better, we were over the worst of it and so on. And I guess the, the Stoic position would simply, I mean, it, this may or may not help, but they would say, well, those expectations unfortunately haven't become real and we need to treat them with a little bit of reserve now and, and perhaps alter our, our expectations and treat them with a bit of reserve. You know, let's, let's hope that six weeks is what it is, but, you know, even six weeks unfortunately may not be. And let's just, let's try and in advance anticipate that it may not be, and this is what they call premeditating evils, not in order to wallow in despair, but in order to, to strengthen ourselves in advance. Now, in terms of how that might look in terms of, of reconnecting with people, I mean, I don't think there's much that the philosophy can say to us, except, you know, we do have these incredible technologies. They're never going to be the same, mm. but obviously... You know, if you can get your kids, for example, as we do, to play with their friends on Zoom, they laugh, they're animated. You can see that it's, it's, it's still a real human thing, even for like a four-year-old or a six-year-old. And so it's clearly still a, you know, it's still a more human experience than, than, than a lot of art, than, than being by yourself. So I guess, yeah, maximise those things. I mean, the Stoics think that it's part of our, our nature to be connected, so if possible, find connection and, and, um, you know, grab a drink with, with your mates on a, on a, on a Friday night on zoom, I guess, listen to some, (laughs) listen to some music together, you know? Yeah. Well, you can watch Um, movies together as well. Yeah. Watch movies together. Yeah. I mean, share, share stuff. That's the thing, you know, you know, the Stoics are very fond of fire metaphors and one of the reasons why is because, you know, with a candle, it's, it's the same as in other traditions. You can light another candle and the first candle's not diminished. And, mm. you know, human connection and, and, and sharing knowledge is like that as well. Like if I teach you about stoicism, now you can go and share it. 
but I haven't, I haven't lost my knowledge, you know, I hope. <laughs> so that won't be before, because of our conversation anyway. It might be no. Similarity in my case, Amy. But... <laughs> not, you're not even yeah. close to that. Yeah. Yeah, surely. It's a bit more to go. <laughs> uh, ask my wife about that. You know. <laughs> anyway. <yeah. laughs> I wanted to ask just about um, Seneca, who is a bit of a favourite of mine. And I know that he's not necessarily the most prominent Stoic when we're talking about Stoicism nowadays. I know Marcus Aurelius is certainly has that very accessible format and Seneca was writing quite differently in different formats. But why do you think it is that Seneca, who I guess is still part of the Stoic movement, hasn't been so prominent, even though we have such a great range of his writings? It's really interesting. Like, at different periods when Stoicism has came back, came back, like Stoicism came back massively in the Renaissance and early modern period, and Seneca was the guy then. And yet now Stoicism is coming back. And I mean, I went to the the Stoicon event in Athens last year, which is the sort of global gathering of of people who are interested in Stoicism, and it's all about Marx Aurelius. And I think it's the personal dimension, the dimension of sort of him speaking to himself so there's no arrogance there's no moralizing like he's he's trying to get his shit together as we would say Seneca is 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 still a part of this but he's definitely number two or number three actually probably number three after Epictetus Mm. I don't know Seneca is kind of he's he's more like a a noble monument you know where the Marcus (laughs) is more like a living human being like I mean that's a little unfair like the letters that Seneca writes to his friend Lucilius are still I, you know, and that's what's most popular of mm. because there is that personal dimension. But the dialogues are a little bit different. They're quote unquote dialogues. Somebody has asked Seneca a question and he basically gives a, a spiel. So they're not really dialogues, but it's, it's just that that's how things were done back then. They're a little bit more formal. They're like beautiful speeches that, you know, that a philosopher might give. They're very well crafted and they lack perhaps that personal connection that you can get from Marcus Aurelius and differently in Epictetus because Epictetus is kind of like, he's like your boxing trainer. He's like, your, <laughs> get your stuff together, Matt. You know, you say this and then you do that. You're a fool. You know, you need to kind of get your stuff together. And I think people relate to that as well. Yeah. He's sort of like, you know, the kind of the Anthony robbins type. He's kind of like a modern non-Stoic, Stoic, I guess, in that sense. And Marcus, as I say, has this personal thing. Mm. Seneca is elevated, noble, and perhaps a little distant, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm, yep. yeah, as I say, I'm just trying to think off, off, off the top of my feet because it did strike me last year that that's mm. what's going on. Yeah, they all have really important things to say. I, th- I feel like they're all offering something very different, which depending on your preference for how you receive information may resonate more than the other. But I, I certainly agree there is this immediacy with Marcus Aurelius when you're reading his quotes and um, meditations. It is very easy to digest and immediately grasp the meaning. Absolutely. Yeah. And as I say, Epictetus is, is, is kind of funny. So there's that yeah. for him. But Seneca's really, he's not really, he's not really funny. It's not a comedian. Uh, no, he's not. He's very, he's very grave and dour and serious and elevating. Um, <laughs> which is great. About I mean, me yeah. that I like him now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're a Renaissance woman, Amy. I uh, must apparently. be. Yeah, <laughs> that's awkward. No, um, <laughs> I, I also liked Epicurus. So yeah, I, I don't know. 
we all we all do things differently, you know. And I mean, you can read different things at different times, and all of a sudden something sparks that wasn't there the first time. Mm. Um, Depends on when you read it. I, I have over the years. I confess, I've never really sat down and done the whole Seneca thing in one go as I have with the others. I mean, there's more of it, but yeah, I've always found it something I can dip into rather than something I want to sort of constantly return to. But that's me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Matthew, we're going to have to leave it there, but I'm really grateful for your amazing insight today. It's uh, been really helpful and hopefully helpful for everyone else listening to have a different way of framing their life situation at the moment, which of course is difficult for so many people in very different ways. And um, I'm really appreciative of your time and uh, your generous teachings of these great philosophers who we can um, access whenever we like and hopefully that do give us some sense of comfort and perspective in all of this very overwhelming situation in Victoria at the moment. Thanks for having me. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.